Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning um, and welcome to the Rose Theatre here in Kingston. Uh, my name is Robert O'Dowd uh, and I am the Chief Executive of the Rose Theatre. Um, as you can see, vaguely based on the original Rose, and I think we're having a talk soon about the original Rose, uh, but different in so many ways. I was just joking about the fact uh, it's a new theatre, we're coming up to our 10th birthday. Uh, it's great because we have no crossover, no wings, no flying tower. So it's a challenging theatre, but we love being in here. As you can see, uh, we are not strictly doing a Shakespeare show at the moment, uh, hiding behind the screen. And when I wrote this this morning, I thought the screen wouldn't be there. But behind here is a, is a set uh, of the play Rules for Living, uh, written by Sam Holcroft. Um, and if you could see behind, you'd see that the set is 75% of normal size to add to the claustrophobia of the play, because the whole play is about the perfect Christmas lunch, as I see it. Um, but I'd love you all to come and see it. There's a show this evening at 8 o'clock. I think Richard, in his midnight email, uh, said there's a show at 8 o'clock this evening. There is a matinee tomorrow, and also our last show with us tomorrow evening. If you'd like to come and see it during the day or at any point, go to our box office, which is just next to the entrance. Say you're with the conference. Uh, and they will offer you company rate, which will be £5 off whichever ticket you buy. So do please um, come and see the show. It's a fantastic show. Um, as we approach our 10th anniversary, uh, it is very exciting to welcome you here today. Uh, this conference, which Richard has put together extraordinarily, as usual, and I started to see some of the plaudits coming around on the emails as Richard keeps sending another email to gather some more plaudits, I think. Maybe not. Um, um, but we are 10 in January, and this kind of starts it. This is our academic input. Uh, I'm sure we'll be another one next year with Richard's great work. Um, but it is very exciting that we reach our 10th birthday. It is in a way poignant and very sad that we approach our 10th birthday uh, in the year when we lost uh, our founding artistic director, Peter Hall, uh, this autumn. Uh, it was a very sad moment when he left us. Um, um, and I think it's point, uh, relevant and appropriate uh, that this, this conference is going on and that, that we talk about Peter as much as we can. Um, after creating the Royal Shakespeare Company, as I'm sure you all know, and then establishing the National on the South Bank and running Glyndebourne, uh, his final, in my view, major contribution to the UK theatre scene was to be one of the driving forces uh, in, in getting this theatre to the state you see it in now. Um, it had taken about 25 years to get to that point, and Frank, who I'm sure will refer to it later on, actually was one of the originators of the idea. But it was really Peter coming on board at the kind invitation of Frank and David Jacobs, who was our then chairman. Uh, and then Peter sort of shook the tree a bit. And, and after three years from memory, we got open. So it was, it was great to have him do that. Um, we are not a pure Shakespearean house, as you can see. We have a contemporary play, which is only two years old behind us. Uh, but we do try and stage as many Shakespeare shows as we can. I think one of the challenges I'd like to put out to you, maybe, is how do we make Shakespeare relevant for the next generation, for a generation of young audience? I think theatre generally is at risk in this country of becoming an old person's um, hobby. And I think we all have to work on how we attract and draw in young people. Um, the drama department, I, I hope there are some students here today. 
I know the head of drama is here today, Jim Reynolds, and, and if you have a time, I would talk to him. But we all have an absolute responsibility to ensure that the next generation of theatre-goers embrace theatre, and in particular, embrace Shakespeare. Um, just to talk about some of the shows that we've done in the rows around Shakespeare, and maybe just the Hall family. As I actually started writing it down, I realised that a lot of them had a connection with the Hall family. For those of you who remember, and somewhere out there there is a picture, there was the extraordinary uh, production of Midsummer Night's Dream uh, with Judy Dench playing Titania, but as Elizabeth I. Uh, she always wanted to do it. She'd done it, I think, uh, many years before properly, and she wanted to play Titania uh, as Elizabeth I. And, and it, it, that is, has still our most successful show, took just under a million pounds on the box office. So is that a combination of Peter, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, or Judy? I shall leave you to imagine why that sold so well. Um, uh, his daughter, Rebecca, appeared in As You Like It on a pile of mud inside the theatre when we were actually just a shell. Um, one of my great losses uh, at the moment is, is Ed's fine company, Propeller. Propeller are extraordinary. For those of you who don't know, it's an, it is. I'm not going to talk about it in the past tense, an all-male Shakespeare company. They do extraordinary work, but they do seem to be very quiet at the moment. Ed is very busy running Hampstead and making film and TV, but if any of you can encourage Propeller to come back out of the woodwork and go on the road, I would really, really appreciate that. Um, and I suppose, looking over my shoulder, our Shakespearean strand and the reference to Peter, and actually to the Royal Shakespeare Company was two years ago when we staged The Wars of the Roses, uh, which Trevor Nunn directed, uh, and it was the first revival of The Wars of the Roses since 1963. Frank will probably correct me, uh, or Richard will certainly correct me. Um, and actually, it's interesting because we are a new theatre, uh, we were eight years old, uh, and it was completely transformational for us doing those four Shakespeare plays into three, as it actually was for the RSC when John Barton and Peter did it. The RSC, so far as I know, was struggling. They did the Wars of the Roses and it was transformational for them. So from my point of view, Shakespeare can be transformational. It has been transformational for us and I think it's really important that conferences like this keep exploring. I know Marlowe is joining you in this conference, but it's very important that we keep Shakespeare alive at every level. Looking forward, um, we are actually producing Much Ado uh, in the spring. Um, it's a co-production with Granville and Parham Productions and Antic Face. And Antic Face, coincidentally, has Peter's youngest daughter, Emma, as the, as the owner and runner of that. So there is a complete circularity in, in, in our association with Peter. So although he may have left us in the autumn, there are still many, many connections that we have with him and his family. But again, if you have the opportunity, do come and see Much Ado. Uh, it's going to star Mel Gidrich, and those of you who are intellectually cultured will know she's in Great British Bake Off, uh, among other things. But she actually is a very fine actor. She acted a lot at Cambridge, and she has a TV life, and she has an acting life. So we're delighted to welcome her as Beatrice. Uh, it'll be directed by Simon Dormandy. Um, and it is a contemporary take. It'll be set in a mafia hotel in Sicily, uh, but the text will, will absolutely stay true to the text, and that opens just after Easter, so do please come and see that. Um, you're here this morning 
to hear Frank talk. Um, so can I just finish by saying welcome to the Rose. I hope you enjoy the next two days. Do please come and see Rules for Living. It ain't Shakespeare, but it's very funny. Um, so welcome to the Rose. And can I please ask Richard Wilson, I think, to introduce Frank. So thank you for coming. Welcome to you all. Uh, I think uh, looking around at this early hour, uh, I'm very impressed not only by how many people have turned up, but what people have turned up to speak about Marlowe and Shakespeare. There can never have been such a gathering, such a constellation uh, on the subject of Marlowe and Shakespeare since Marlowe and Shakespeare dined together. So um, I'm enormously excited uh, and uh, very grateful to you. You come from America, you come from Turkey, you come from all over Europe. Uh, Eurostar was packed, I think, this morning. But uh, I'm also very grateful to the representatives of different parts of the Marlowe Shakespeare world who are here today, because a new narrative is developing, which you might say, uh, in shorthand, is not the globe. And that Rose narrative has to do with a whole series of uh, institutions that are represented at this conference. It's a narrative that connects Canterbury, where we have Andy Dawson and Ken Pickering very closely involved in the new Marlowe Centre there, or the kit, as they're calling it, which is an extremely exciting project in a historic building in Canterbury. It's, of course, the Bankside uh, Rose, where Harvey Sheldon, the chair, will be representing um, the project there, the extremely exciting educational programme that Nick Helm, the architect, has been responsible for, and we'll be speaking about in a session later this morning. And, of course, it's the rose here. The, uh, I'd like to think that this is this rose, which is a replica, um, a modern replica of the original rose, is the fulcrum of the new narrative that is developing, the rose narrative, which climaxes, or will climax, on a grand opening in, I think, two years' time, with the reproduction, the replica of not the, globe, not the rose, but the cockpit theatre, but nonetheless a rose-connected theatre in Liverpool at the gates of Knowsley. Uh, the gates of Knowsley uh, are, in fact, um, uh, open onto the small market town of Prescott. And in that small market town of Prescott, Lord Strange's men built sometime in the late 1580s a playhouse uh, for the Earl of Derby's company to perform in when they were not performing in London at the Rose. So Strange's men are very much part of this strange new story. Uh, it'll be strange to the world when uh, the narrative becomes more consolidated because the world associates Shakespeare so much with the globe. But our focus this morning is on the Rose narrative, and it's a narrative both intellectual and architectural that is coming together in, I think, extremely exciting ways from Canterbury to Liverpool, with Kingston as a fulcrum. It's my great honour, pleasure, delight to have the dream job of being the Sir Peter Hall Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Kingston University, based here at the Rose. It is a dream job because it brings together both sides of Peter Hall's great vision for this theatre and this university. One of the reasons that 
the Rose Theatre was built is that Peter Hall was for many years the extremely successful, much-loved Chancellor of this university with a very close working relationship with our then uh, uh, Vice-Chancellor Peter Scott, the Guardian Education Correspondent, and that was an enormously powerful alliance, and it brought together uh, education and theatre in ways that make this theatre very special in its dedication to actors and academics working side by side, and that is our mission. And it's very uh, apt, therefore, that I, our first speaker today should be one of the founding fathers both of this theatre and of the drama department, Frank Wakeley. There was, I believe, scarcely an evening, certainly not a week went by, without long interminable phone calls from Peter Hall to Frank during those years of production. Frank got very used to Peter Hall's um, insomniac uh, um, and, but visionary phone calls and they worked so closely together to create this space and to create the drama department uh, that Peter Hall was also in his master classes involved with at the university just down the river. So Frank Wakeley uh, is in some sense oral history, walking oral history of this space and if you seek his monument look about you. He is uh, a scholar of the Rose Theatre of the original Bankside Rose Theatre, and of Edward Allen, who he'll be speaking about. The vision that Frank brings to this intellectual and architectural project is brilliantly displayed in a fascinating essay that he wrote for Kai Elizabethan last year on this theatre. I do recommend you read it. It's, it's wonderful history. And uh, that history, I think, will, will go on, and Frank will be part of the narrative of celebrating the Peter Hall vision with a conference next year, because, as some of you may already know, we are planning to hold a commemorative conference um, in collaboration with Glyndebourne, the National Theatre, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, dedicated to Peter Hall next year. So can I introduce our first speaker, Frank Wakeley? <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Richard and Robert. Um, I haven't got any slides, I'm not very good with technology, but in a sense my slide is behind this screen, of course, and uh, I, uh, w without, uh, with, with, with rules for living on the stage, we wouldn't have been able to see it fully in any case, but it is the replica of the rose. The 1587 rose would have, uh, the, the, uh, the, the um, lozenge of the stage came to about here. We originally had that. They've even, just for today's conference, put an extra bit of thrust on. I want you to imagine it's not there, and this bit is not there, and in some way I'm floating on air, so that we get the feeling of, um, of the original rose theatre. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be uh, offering this plenary paper in a space which um, has played a not inconsiderable part in my life over the past three years, uh, uh, th three and a half decades rather. Had the archaeology of the original Rose Theatre of 1587 not been uh, revealed in 1989, this theatre would look very different. But here it is. And I want to consider whether it can contribute to our understanding of Edward Allen as an actor and indeed challenge some of the judgments and assertions made about him. Some of my thoughts about this uh, Rose Theatre, as uh, Richard ha ha has mentioned, were published a year or two ago. But today I want to reimagine Allen the actor in the Rose during the phenomenal theatre decade of the 1590s. 
In trying to assess the qualities of an actor from another time, there are two primary sources, it seems to me, the descriptions and commentaries of people who saw and heard the actor and the character of the plays performed. Some of the voices are more reliable than others. When Thomas Haywood says, actors should be men picked out personable according to the parts they present, it is an actor and a playwright and a theatre sharer talking, an experienced and judicious practitioner. Then there are the secondary uh, sources which compare, argue, interpret, make conjecture about these sources with all the fallibilities of the lack of ocular proof, or indeed oral proof, but with the dangers that notions firmly and often enough asserted uh, can become accepted as fact. Somewhere in between the primary and the secondary is the physical context, the playing space. We cannot step back into the Elizabethan amphitheatres, but if we know their physical properties and dimensions, we can take considerable steps to rework the nature of the space the actor inhabited and the proxemics between actor and audience. And so evaluate. I evaluate what elsewhere I've described as actors' conversations. The discovery of the archaeology of the 1587 rose offered an extraordinary and added opportunity in this regard, and it did indeed prompt us to build this theatre. I guess the names Marlowe and Alain go together like to Helena's double cherry, toss in the rose, and this triumvirate of elements causes theatrical thoughts and allusions to blossom in the historical mind's eye. Great rhetorical verse, the Marlovian line, a physically imposing actor stalking and strutting, the garrulous and garlic-breathed stinkards in the pit, <laughs> swashbuckling actions above them, sound and fury, the world being threatened with high astounding terms, and so on. As Peter Thompson once wrote, it was above all as the creator of Marlowe's towering heroes that Alain was celebrated. Thompson suggests that when in 1600, after a short retirement, Alain returned to the stage for the opening of the new Fortune Theatre, his highly rhetorical style may by then have seemed old-fashioned. Reg Folks suggests that the leading role in Green's Orlando Furioso may have suited Alain as a ranting part. Andrew Gurr continues the theme of sound and fury, noting his skill as a swordsman. In Orlando Furioso, the hero engages in a duel on the stage which the Corto text scores with the stage direction, they fight a good while, then breathe. Gurr says that at the Red Bull, Alain's swashbuckling tradition survived right up to the closure of the theatres, that is, in 1642. Elsewhere, he talks of the plays at the Fortune and the Red Bull theatres in the 1630s, reflecting the style set by Alain in the 1590s. He says it was majestic parts that Alain excelled in, and there is reason to believe that Alain's violence of voice and gesture <coughs> in his most famous parts 
established a tradition of exaggeration which accompanied him with the Admiral's men to the fortune and went from there with Richard Perkins to the Red Bull and which contrasted unfavourably in some minds with the moderation of the Blackfriars. That was Andrew Gurr. Gurr took that reference to majestic roles from Thomas Fuller, whose Worthies of England in 1662 did make reference to Alain, and he was anything but critical. Fuller said that Alain's reputation was of so acting to the life that he made any part to become him. You may have gleaned that I'm uh, uh, uneasy about some recent assertions about Henslow's stepson-in-law. In fact, for 200 years after his death, Alain was remembered as a distinguished actor, even if it was not clear why. The dramatic magazine in 1830 sighed, it is a singular circumstance and greatly to be regretted that celebrated as Alain was and by the unanimous assent of his contemporaries pronounced an unequalled actor, we know scarcely anything of the particular line in which he excelled. Yet for much of modern times, until recently, Gurr's violence of voice and gesture has been a keynote. Alain as a sort of swaggering Schwarzenegger or a rumbustious Brian Blessed. The roaring and rhetoric label seems to have begun to gain traction at the turn of the 20th century. Karl Mancius, in his 1904 A History of Theatrical Art, expresses surprise that no one before noticed that Shakespeare made several vehement assaults on Alain. Hamlet, says Mancius, is evidently attacking the Admiral's leading man, actor, in his speech to the players. There is, he says, not the slightest doubt that Shakespeare is attacking his rival, Alain. Better still, of course, Hamlet's words are spoken by Richard Burbage, so the metatheatrical point is even sharper. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hands thus. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear a rumbustious, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings who, for the most part, are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. Is this a critique of Alain? And in passing an insult to the Rose audience at the very time that the New Globe would be intent on winning that audience. Andrew Gurr concurs, what Shakespeare criticised in Hamlet was, in fact, Alain's style of acting. Even Bottom's playing pretensions have been cited as a satirical commentary on Alain as Tamburlaine. I will move storms, I will condole in some measure, yet my chief humour is for retirement. I could play Hercules rarely, or a part to tear a cat in to make all split. The raging rocks and shivering shocks shall break the locks of... and so on. G.B. <laughs> Harrison in 1927 wrote that Alain's chief humour was for a tyrant. And all such parts were made for strutting and bellowing. John Dover Wilson takes up the idea again with his own edition of Hamlet and also 
what happens in Hamlet, saying the players and Hamlet's criticism were attacks on Alain and the Admiral's men. By the early 1940s, these ideas were more firmly rooted. Friedby and Reeves, in their history of the theatre, spoke of Alain's exaggerated style of acting. Brooke, in a pageant of English actors, said his acting was somewhat over-heavy. William Armstrong's attempt in a Shakespeare survey article of 1954 to restore his reputation was stopped in its tracks by the aforesaid Andrew Gurr's first foray on the subject. Prompted by Harrison's assertion that Pistol in Henry IV Part II was a kind of wasting parody of Alain, Gurr insists that Pistol's burlesquing of Tamburlaine and Muli Mahomet is an example of the Chamberlain's men offering a mark of their divergence from Alain's style. There is an implicit confusion here with the style of the actor and the style of the playwright. And was it to reinforce this sense of a rivalry between the company soon to occupy the globe and the men at the rose that uh, Gabriel Egan, and I'm not sure if Gabriel's here, but I know Stanley is, who edited uh, the uh, Oxford Companion to Shakespeare, but Gabriel said to augment his large bulk, Alain apparently developed a powerful style of large gestures and loud speaking, which others mocked as stalking or strutting and roaring. This I hasten to say, Professor Egan said, in the days of his own particular loyalty to the, uh, the then new Shakespeare's globe. It is interesting that the increasingly direct critical comments and assertions developed through the century which saw naturalism emerge as a force in theatre writing, followed by the influence on actor training of, of Stanislavski and his studio system, and, and then those disciples, such as the Actors Studio in New York and Drama Centre in Britain. Does this affect our view, looking back to Alain, a modern actor typically represents a role on stage. The Elizabethans uh, more often spoke of presenting a role. This word, as John Astington says, carries with it some sense of bringing into being or into the current living moment and presence. Such a presentation is declarative rather than imitative. It relies on explications or familiarity to give it meaning and calls on an audience's indulgence to fill in the, its gaps as persuasive communication. I'll have more to say about that later, both on the style or method and on the audience engagement and also its contemporary currency. This presentational characteristic in the public playhouses would have been as true of Burbage as it would have been about Alain. They were spoken of, as it were, in the same breath. Marston poses the question rhetorically in 1598. Say, who acts best, Drusus or Roscio? It would be nice to be able to compare the two of them without each being defined only through the playwright each is most associated with. Did they perhaps share the same stage together? They certainly seem uh, both to have been together at the Rose in the early 1590s and even in the same company. At different times did they play the same character. Nowadays one can ask, have you seen so-and-so's Cleopatra or uh, so-and-so's Hamlet? 
Well, there is one role. It does seem likely that both played Hieronimo in Kidd's Spanish tragedy. Alain probably created the role in the late 1580s. Meanwhile, one version of an anonymous funeral elegy to Burbage laments, no more young Hamlet, old Hieronimo, kindlier the grieved more and more beside. As Lois Potter points out, Kidd's play was printed in 1592 and so was, in theory, available to other companies. Unlike many plays which were owned exclusively by a company, but we have no detailed reports on either in the role. Professor Potter, and I'm not sure if she's here yet, whether her plane from America has arrived, but Professor Potter, I must briefly declare an interest as I call on her authority. I was fortunate enough to be taught by her nearly 50 years ago, but she suggests Alain might have been the obvious choice for Richard, Duke of York, had a version of Shakespeare's Richard III been played in the early 1590s. She goes further in conjecture, linking Alain and Burbage to, amongst other plays, The Comedy of Errors and The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Each, she says, uh, built around two leading men, which might fit the brief period when Burbage and Alain were acting in the same company. And most teasingly of all, the thought that when originally played, Titus Andronicus might have seen the two leading actors on the stage, one playing Titus and the other Aaron the Moor. I'll leave you to conjecture who might have played which part in, in that scenario. It's not clear when Alain first appeared at the Rose, but his association with Marlowe probably began before that, when he first played Tamburlaine. With Strange's Men from 1589, he was playing Barabbas in The Jew of Malta and Muli Mohammed in The Battle of Alcazar. By 1592, aged only 26, he is at the Rhodes, and married, of course, to Joan, Henslow's stepdaughter. By the middle of the decade, he was, uh, as Carol Chillington Rutter says, London's premier tragedian. Thomas Nash in Pierce Penniless in 1592 exclaims that not Roscius nor Aesop, those tragedians admired before Christ was born, could ever perform more in action than famous Ned Alley. He was clearly a company figurehead. When a knack to know a knave was registered with the stationer in 1593, it was as it has sundry times been played by Ned Allen and his company. His fame persisted. Thomas Hayward, in an apology for actors in 1612, wrote, Amongst so many dead, let me not forget one alive. In his time, the most worthy, famous Master Edward Alley. It is interesting, too, to hear Hayward's description of the ideal actor who would have elegant gesture, a natural and familiar motion of the head, the hand, the body, everything according to the nature of the person personated. It's a far cry from Hamlet sawing the air too much. And finally, there is the irascible and changeable Ben Jonson in complementary mode in Epigrams of 1616, Johnson casts himself as a modern Cicero who celebrated the great theatrical figures of ancient times. 
How can so great example die in me that, Alain, I should pause to publish thee? And he concludes, as others speak, but only thou dost act. Where this renown, tis just that who did give so many poets life by one should live. I'll return later to the Johnsonian tirade purportedly against Alain, published some years after Johnson's uh, death and called in evidence by some of his critics. One of the difficulties in assessing Alain and indeed the importance of the rose is the lost repertoire. We know the titles of many plays which he must have been involved with as the leading admiral's man but alas, not the plays themselves. The Fire in the Fortune Theatre in 1620 must have destroyed parchment loads of textual evidence, which we might otherwise have referred to in order to gauge the breadth of his talent. One that did survive in an abbreviated form is George Chapman's comedy, The Blind Beggar of Alexandria. John Astington says that this play offers the clearest evidence of Alain's range. The leading actor, the title page of the 1598 published text announces, will be seen most pleasantly discussing his variable humours in disguised shapes full of conceit and pleasure. Alan's role was Cleanthes, born the son of a shepherd, sort of references to Tamblaine there, who on banishment from Egypt adopts a variety of disguises. It does have to be said it's not the most ethical of plots, uh, with two of the female characters shamelessly used and abused. As a disguised Cleanthes, he plays a decrepit beggar, a scheming moneylender, and a choleric count, and manages to marry each of the women in turn. Alain says, says Astington, Alain was not assisted by a makeup department. The changes in his costuming must have been few, and the burden of the change in humor laid on modification of physical manner, pace and movement, of facial mask and vocal tone and manner. The actor transformed himself, and that beneath the surface change he was recognizably the same man, Cleanthes and Edward Alain provided part of the audience's pleasure. This reference to the audience and their potential experience brings me to a consideration of the acting space with which the actor is principally associated, the rose itself. Michael Hathaway, before uh, the revelatory discovery 30 years ago, wrote, undoubtedly the players did adapt themselves to the physical features of their playing spaces. Before 1989, the Rose was known simply as one of the South Bank amphitheatres. It was built in 1587 and had fallen out of use only 16 years later. It disappeared like an Elizabethan warship, sinking apparently without trace into the tidal Thames mud until it was pulled back into the light 386 years later. The excitement at the discovery of Henslow's theatre was accompanied by some surprises. Three features of the 
unique rows stood out, significant because they would each have affected how a player played and what an audience experienced. There was the polygonal shape of the theatre, the shape of the stage, and the surprisingly small size of the whole amphitheatre, even taking into account the changes apparently made in enlarging the space in 1592. It was said that when Ian McKellen went down to the archaeological dig, his first response was, well, you don't have to shout in here. <laughs> so struck was he by the intimacy of the space. I have a little personal anecdote here. When I included this report, uh, this reported remark uh, for publication a couple of years ago, my editor, the brilliant and rigorous Chloe Preedy, I think might be here, or might not quite be here, um, uh, quite reasonably asked me to reference McKellen's remark. I spent a day or so scouring my old papers and books, coming to the conclusion that Peter Hall must have told me it, and by then poor old Peter would not have really understood, let alone recall what I needed. At that very time, uh, we were doing Brian Friel's translations here in the Rose. And I sat somewhere back there with my daughter, by some sheer good fortune, and this was quite literally two or three days after I'd been asked for the reference. Uh, so by some good fortune, whether the movement of the stars or whatever, Ian McKellen was in the row and seat immediately behind. <laughs> so I was able to ask him if indeed he had said that. Do you know, he said, I can't honestly remember. <laughs> But if I didn't, I certainly should have done. <laughs> so I'm saying it now. It was so surprisingly small. And he regaled us with further delightful stories about hazelnuts and nicked clay pipes. The nature and quality of the actor-audience uh, communication at the original Rose were evident, evidently very different to anything which had previously been supposed. Now that we have this space, what more can be said? Well, our rose does not pretend to be an accurate replica. It is a modern theatre which attempted to ensure that the spatial relationship between the stage and auditorium resembled as closely as possible the original. In our opening season, in the shell, a very chilly shell it was too, we had our pit with standing. This floor drops down quite easily, um, about three or four feet. Um, but it's since given way to uh, more modern demands for comfort, so people can sit at this level. The 1587 rose was a 14-sided, not entirely regular polygon. This one has 11 large sides with 10 smaller sections and arrangement which enabled best use of the footprint available to this development, whilst preserving as closely as possible a relationship with the original. The measurements, however, are telling. The external diameter of the original was 72 feet. And here, 73 feet, 7 inches. The inner yard of Alain's rose was 49 feet, 
and of its offspring here, 49 feet 6 inches, so very similar. The other important feature which emerged from the archaeology was the shape of the stage. Um, and you have to imagine this shape that we have here sitting back about here, on a line here. The excavations revealed the original dimensions of the stage as well as those of the larger 1592 development. We began here with a stage width of approximately 37 feet, tapering to 27 feet downstage, and only 16 feet 6 inches deep. And this arrangement obviously is deeper than that. But those measurements were the lozenge stage and... Uh, and it was very similar to a matter of inches to the original. The archaeological excavation challenged assumptions about the original shape of the rose stage. Previous evidence, such as the surviving DeWitt uh, drawing of the swan and the order to Peter Street, who had also built the globe, for the new fortune, had led to the supposition that all stages thrust out well into the auditorium in the amphitheatres. This lozenge shape transforms the nature of the potential communication between actor and audience. For Alain, this would have been fundamental to his work. Martin White, who has been involved in some very important recreated spaces and experiments within them, has said the performance space would have had arguably the defining impact on acting styles. Stepping out onto the vast stage at the Fortune, for example, would have been a very different experience from entering onto the compact stage at the Rose. When Peter Hall first saw the shell of the theatre we were building, he described it as intimate yet epic. It is these two words, intimate and epic, chosen by a great modern practitioner which seemed to me both to reflect our subsequent experience in this space, but also to cause us to adjust common perceptions about the particular communication which took place between Alain and his audience. When theatre-goers first saw this place in action in March 2003, it was a drafty shell. Barry Rutter brought his Northern Broadsides Company here to play Henry V, with Conrad Nelson as the king, and a woman killed with kindness. Rutter, himself a forthright and full-voiced actor, said of his own broadsides repertoire that there was a sweet circularity in coming to Kingston's Rose. Shakespeare's Henry V had been one of the first productions at the New Globe Theatre, which Burbage's company had established in 1599, close to and therefore in competition with the original Rose. More apposightly still, A Woman Killed with Kindness was quite possibly one of the last plays to be seen at the Rose, probably being performed there in early 1603. Perhaps it's too fanciful to think that Edward Alain, called back to the stage a few years before by Queen Elizabeth, gave one of his last performances as Frankfurt, uh, in this very play at the Rose before retiring to build Dulwich College. Rutter's performances, he played the chorus in Henry V, suggested uh, an immediate and instinctive understanding of how the new Rose might work. 
an understanding which has not always been replicated by others down the years. I have mentioned presentational performance. That is how the rose works best. Rutter took the opportunity to exploit this potential to the full, which he did with considerable subtlety. There were oratorical flourishes, but there were also moments when he drew the audience to him, as though making them complicit in the anticipated action. When the audience here is, is ranged in the galleries, the most distant spectator is no more than 45 feet from the stage up there. And a hundred stood in the pit as groundlings. Rutter was the storyteller. And when he coaxed the audience, now entertain conjecture of a time, it was as though he was prompting each member of the audience individually to be there. Rutter realised that size and proximity are factors in developing a sense of intimacy and it makes for exciting and interactive theatre. I cannot imagine that a man of Alain's intelligence would miss that. The dimensions of the space are what makes this place distinct and it's worth listening further to Peter Hall while reflecting on the way another theatre giant uh, would have responded. It is intimate yet epic, a place for intimate scenes or for surging battles. It has the mandatory requirement for Shakespeare. It is small enough to whisper in and large enough to shout in. It is a place for the imagination where a good actor with a good text can make the audience imagine that they are anywhere. It is a modern theater which has all the strengths of the past. Of course, good actors do adapt, whether to roles, to styles of writing, or to the nature of the spaces in which they're performing. As Michael Billington noted of his two, in his 2004 review of As You Like It, Peter Hall's first production here, again in an unfitted out shell, the most successful performances are achieved by actors who draw on both experience and some innate tuition. Billington wrote, it is illuminating to see how an experienced actor intuitively understands the space and adjusts his performance upwards. By this he did not mean ranting or bellowing. And he concluded, the rose is an exciting space and a magnificent opportunity. Some part of this magnificent opportunity lies in casting new light on Elizabethan stage practices, which, it must be admitted, the Rose is yet fully to seize. But I won't get sidetracked by that today, especially with Robert here. One of the special keys in places like this is the audience, um, as it is also, for instance, at the Globe. Mark Rylance, who knows that stage better than any other, has said, the Globe is an audience's theatre. And he found that it became paramount to say to actors, don't speak to them, speak for them, speak with them, play with them. I really came to feel it was not just about speaking, it was about thinking of the audience as other actors. It was more about the fact that anything they did 
was like another player on the stage doing something. If the Globe was and is an audience's theatre, how much more is the Rose? But that doesn't mean it's not dramatic. Chloe Preedy in her breaches in a battered wall wonderfully reimagines the spectacular and physical impact that Alain Tamburlaine must have had on the audience as the boundaries of imaginative space extend beyond the stage platform to fill the whole world of the theatre interior. And spaces such as this encourage an interactive engagement of the imagination of the audience. What other benefits does the Rose Lozenge have over a thrust stage? Well, think, for instance, of the RSC's Swan Theatre, or more tellingly, their new stage, which surprisingly mirrors their smaller thrust. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Swan, but the, the lozenge, unlike the thrust, allows for a sweep of action on and off the stage, particularly when uh, large numbers of players are involved. And so it is effective in serving the epic moments of histories and tragedies. One only has to think of Tamburlaine playing here, how it must have flourished at the how it must have flourished at the Rose. If it did begin somewhere else, somewhere larger, on a jutting promontory, it might well have been more noisy. Access, and more importantly, egress, is relatively easy on a stage like this, for large numbers of people as well as individuals, in a way that is it is not on a thrust stage. Dramatic tableaus, again associated with the known plays in the Alain Rose repertoire, can also be affected in a particularly focused way. It's very difficult with all of this paraphernalia here to see, but there are strong points all over this stage. Um, I use the top gallery at the back there for short but uh, sort of uh, important rhetorical moments. The lower gallery is a wonderfully adaptable space. Trevor Nunn used this place marvellously uh, a year or so ago with the, the Wars of the Roses. Your strong backstage right, your strong backstage left, inevitably these points uh, are, are good as they are in any theatre. But there is one area, and if you imagine the thrust coming only to here, there's one area about four or five um, feet upstage and then extending out which is more than a strong point. It's a strong area. And what's wonderful about it is that an actor can talk to all members of the audience from that point, there and there, as well as here, engaging eye contact with minimal artificial movement. It's further upstage than this, but you can be talking there and talking there so easily. Whereas on the RSC, the new stage at the RSC, if you get an actor way down here, there is an awful lot of audience up behind them. So that's really the, uh, the, the fundamental difference, I think. In addition, all words, especially complicated words, can be heard clearly and thus understood more fully. And I'll wait to hear that uh, you couldn't hear some of the things that I said have said. So... Uh, as Peter Hall has said, though, the thrust stage is difficult for complicated words. So, the epic is related to the intimate, uh, to the intimate in the architecture of the rose. 
and the advantage it gives the actor in his or her conversations uh, with the audience is significant. This rose space convinces me that both Alain's acting style and the way the repertoire was played in the theatre so closely associated with him have been grossly oversimplified uh, by uh, some commentators. That may have been driven by the repertoire we know that Alain played. Burbage, the actor, is defined by the extraordinary depth and breadth of his friend Shakespeare's writing, Hamlet, Othello, Henry V, King Lear and so on. Alain is both defined and sometimes excoriated by his association with those surviving majestic parts. Both he and Marlowe are sometimes disparaged as a result. We know that Crack Me This Nut was, not a, was, a, was a very popular rose comedy in which Alain presumably excelled. But we know nothing more about it because it, along with so much of the rose repertoire, has disappeared. Of the 280 or so plays which Henslow refers to in his diary, only 29 seem to have survived. Jeanette Dillon notes that over a period of three years, a leading actor with the Admiral's men like Alain, had to play about 71 different parts, including 52 or so new to him at that time. So Burbage is given his context of variety. Alain has been deprived of his. But how would an Alain performance of Marlowe sound and look? Of Marlowe, Robert Wyman has said that he developed a literary language symbolizing a capacity for circumscribing the power of a new Renaissance type of mimesis on common stages. This mimesis strictly is strictly harnessed to a textually determined purpose of playing. How far were they? In, uh, however, he I beg your pardon. However, he does say uh, that the actor's voice and writer's pen are not always in harmony. How far were they in Tamburlaine? Imagine the impact of each in a world where the playhouses had so recently been established, where the player was only beginning to move from the fringes of society, whilst this particular playwright was refining his education at Cambridge. We anticipate the entrance of Tamburlaine. We have been prepared for the Scythian Tamburlaine threatening the world with high astounding terms and scourging kingdoms with his conquering sword. And enter upstage Edward Alain, impressively tall, of commanding voice, leading Xenocrates. Come, lady, let not this appall your thoughts. Physically, we know Alain was certainly imposing. Susan Carasano's striking article, Tamburlaine and Edward Alain's Ring, is brilliant detective work in this and confirms everything according to the nature of the person personated. Menaphon no doubt describes Alain when he says of Tamburlaine, of stature tall and straightly fashioned, like his desire lift upwards and divine. So large of limbs, his joints so strongly knit, 
such breadth of shoulders as might mainly bear old Atlas' burden. And if we accept that Menefen is describing Alain, we should also listen to other descriptions and consider how vocally and physically he appeared on this stage at other moments. In Act 3 of the first part of Tamburlaine, there's a marvellous dramatic moment. To the horror of a guidus, Xenocrates tells that she has been won by Tamburlaine. As looks the sun through Nilus' flowing stream, or when the morning holds him in her arms, so looks my lordly love, fair Tamburlaine. His talk much sweeter than the muses' song they sang for honour against the Pierides. A few moments later, as Agaidas disparages Tamburlaine, though he seemed to love you much, his ardour has cooled, Tamburlaine appears behind Agaidas. An action takes place, and Tamburlaine uh, and Xenocrates leave the stage. The hapless and horrified Agaidas gulps, betrayed by fortune, and he knows his numbers up, and he contemplates his inevitable fate. What is that action behind him? Well, a combination of editorial editions attempt to interpret the moment based on what is spoken and perhaps what is seen in production. Tamburlaine goes to Xenocrates and takes her lovingly by the hand, looking wrathfully on a guidus, and says nothing. Exeunt. A guidus remains. As a director of the play today, that moment has tremendous potential. It is the director's job to move the play from one moment of dramatic tension to the next. And the actor will embody it. For Edward Alley, creating the role for the very first time without a director, that potential was all his to fulfil. Perhaps some of the fond and frivolous gestures omitted by the publisher, Richard Jones. It is a moment without words which shows different sides of Tamburlaine's nature. His violent threat on the one hand, but his capacity for gentle and passionate love, shown in his devotion to his divine Xenocrates. That word lovingly is telling. It accords with what Xenocrates herself says of Tamburlaine. In a space this intimate, it would have added impact for its tightly packed audience. Now, perceptions can change. I said I would return to the irascible Ben Johnson, who wrote of Alain as others speak, but only thou dost act. It's the same Johnson who wrote of Marlowe's mighty line. Then decades later, nearly half a century, following his own death in 1640, Johnson's Timber or Discoveries is published. In it we hear him contrast the true artificer with the writer or the actor whose language flies from all humanity with the Tamerlanes and Tamashans of the late age, which had nothing in them but cynical strutting and furious vociferation to warrant them to the ignorant gapers. And thus, as Johnson takes a shot at Marlowe, Alain is winged, 
and some in more modern times seize their ammunition. Whatever you make of Johnson's choice of words or state of mind looking back as he made them, objective or subjectively written in a bad mood, they have had a lasting impact. But of other plays, we hear much about one performance of Dr. Faustus in which extra devils invade the stage from the audience, an image of chaos, noise, and hocus-pocus. But the play obviously is more than this. Perhaps the most famous lines which Alain ever spoke offer, nay demand, a subtlety of acting style. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. They kiss. Her lips suck forth my soul. See where it flies. Come, Helen, give, come, give me my soul again. They kiss again. Here will I dwell, for heaven be in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena. Where is he on the stage? I guess somewhere in that strong area up there, so that he can play the action and, and engage each member of the audience. The rhetorical wonder of the first two lines gives way to the urgent and contradictory desire for physical, sexual, lustful gratification, confused by the need for immortality. This ludicrous, self-deceived request to a walking cadaver, a ghost, a spirit proceeding from a heat-oppressed brain, a Mephistophelian joke, whatever it is, nevertheless carries a weight of male confusion and need. Whatever she is, Faustus kisses and her lips suck forth my soul. He wants his soul back so he kisses again and finds heaven and all but Helen is hell. Why have audiences down the ages not laugh the character off the stage? It verges on bathos. It's preposterous, isn't it? Well, no. Marlowe's genius ensures that it is a great theatrical moment rather than a laughable one. It's one of those moments in theatre which is at one and the same time active and reactive, but reflective too. It is anything but strutting or bellowing. It's complex, emotionally and psychologically, and it's dangerous. But it needs a quality of acting to meet its evident demands. Alain did not merely have one stab at it. He embodied the role throughout much of his working life and was celebrated for the role thereafter. And he could play comedy. The quick-fire wit of Barabbas, for instance, when Lodovic comes to search him out to buy from him the one jewel he has left, Abigail, his daughter. There's a technically complex dialogue of dark humour, mixing direct bargaining with, on Alain Barabbas' part, cutting, potent and grimly funny asides to the audience. Lodovic says, and what's the price? To which Barabbas replies, your life and if you have it. 
Oh, my lord, we will not jar about the price. Come to my house, and I will gift your honour with a vengeance. No, Barabbas, I will deserve it first. Good sir, your father has deserved it at my hands. Who of mere chariot and so on. Little surprise then that Thomas Hayward in his dedicatory epistle on the occasion of a new production at the cockpit three decades after Alain's retirement remembers the part of the Jew presented by so unimitable actor as Master Alain. Susan Carasano points out that for all the popularity of tragedy, history and romance, the Rose repertoire by the mid-1590s showed a broad range of kinds of plays. In other words, plays with other than only majestic roles. My thought is, like the little rose itself, with its capacity to contain both the intimate and the epic, so too would Edward Allen play both the epic and the intimate. An actor embodying a text, a whole variety of texts, but doing so in a particular space where his conversations with the audience would, of creative and commercial necessity, have had a reciprocity with the rose. Haywood saw him, worked with him, probably wrote for him, and looking back, said of him, the attribute of peerless being a man whom we may rank with doing no one wrong Proteus for shapes and Roscius for a tongue. So could he speak, so very 